Good morning. Let's see. I'm supposed to say something before I start. We have a picnic over at Longleaf Park after church, right afterwards. Come over and have lunch. If you don't know us, if you've not gotten connected, just come over and hang out. Have a sub sandwich and get to know a few people. We are a group of people that really loves Jesus and really loves each other, and we are all about having Christ formed within us. Yeah? Okay, uh, we are looking at the Gospel of John. Um, I'm actually in John 11, if you want to turn there. I'm reading out of an NIV Bible. Um, What's uh, amazing, uh, sort of as we go through this, the idea is that we're opening the Scriptures, we're looking at the Gospel of John, we're actually attempting to get me out of the way um, and let the Word speak. How many of you know God is a God who speaks? God is a God who interacts with us in and through his word, in and through our hearts. Um, So what's interesting is as we've gone through this book of John, uh, early on, we spent a good bit of time looking at who Jesus claimed to be, right? Jesus is the great I am. That's exactly right. Okay. And then we pivoted just a little bit and we began to look at the God Jesus knew. And there was an invitation over the last few Sundays as we've kind of looked at this chapter at John, um, an invitation into seeing God as a loving, gracious, kind, gentle father that has not only um, his glory in mind, but your best interests. Make sense? What we're going to actually shift into today is there's a tragedy we're going to read about. A guy named Lazarus is going to die. And we're going to look at um, two sisters, Mary and Martha, and the disciples, but primarily Mary and Martha. And we're going to look at how they respond to the tragedy, how they interact with Jesus. And I think what we'll begin to see is there's this, um, it's almost like there's a war going on in Mary's mind um, and in Martha's mind. Do you ever feel like there's a war going on in your mind? Yeah? You hear me? So there's something, I think, very powerful here that we can actually wrestle with. So I'm going to kind of read through some things. We're going to talk about it. Um, and then we're going to go back. And I want to open up this idea because you get Mary and you get Martha looking at the Lord Jesus saying, why weren't you here? That why question. You ever ask that? Come on, if you're like me. I ask that sometimes. And then the other thing that both of them ask is, it's this idea, if only you had been here sooner. So we're going to get into that. And then we're going to get into this other question that's sort of implicit in the text, but it's what if. Okay, so we're looking at these three questions, why, um, if only, and then what if, and then we're going to try to pivot into our own lives and go, okay, how can we learn from the two sisters and from this whole chapter, but even how we can win uh, sort of the battle in our own minds um, so that we can practice the presence of Jesus more fully in our daily life. Yeah? Okay, if we were like looking up books right now on, um, you know, the war in your mind, uh, Joyce Meyer would say it's the battlefield of the mind. Some of y'all might know Joyce. I love Joyce. Uh, Francis Frangipan would have called it the three battlegrounds, the battlefield of the mind. There's a recent one by Craig Groeschel who says winning the war in your mind. But we really want to um, invite Jesus into this whole process as we, as we look at this together. So before we read, here's what I want you to do. Say, Lord Jesus, would you speak to me? All right, now let's open our Bibles or scroll away or whatever you're doing. And I'm in John 11. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. 
He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and his sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So we're actually going to read about that next week in chapter 12, okay? So you can kind of hold that. Um, you should also know that uh, sort of implicit in all of this is Jesus is very close to Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Okay, these are like Jesus's people. They're like his inside people. And I think one of the things that's probably sad, and you're actually going to see Jesus use the word believe, um, I think in my translations it's six times. Sometimes it's eight, eight times, different translations, it's eight times. But there's some sadness in Jesus because his people don't believe. Okay, so let's keep going. So the sisters sent word to Jesus and said, Lord, the one you love is sick. Isn't it amazing they didn't even use his name? I'd love to be known as the one you love, the one Jesus loves. I mean, that's that they sent word, the one you love is sick. So Jesus has this really close affinity with Lazarus, and he's very special to him. All right, verse 4. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. So Jesus is speaking to the messenger. We don't know who the messenger was, but Jesus is reassuring the messenger. And then he's sending the messenger back to carry that message. This sickness won't end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. All right, verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister, which is Mary, and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, this is really mind-boggling to me, so look at this really closely. So when he heard, uh, let's go back, verse 5. Now Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Okay, verse 6. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. When he heard Lazarus was sick, he jumped up and he ran to his bedside to comfort Lazarus and the family. When he heard Lazarus was sick, he wrote a sweet note and sent it by mail. When he heard Lazarus was sick, what'd he do? I mean, you get this idea he's not even doing anything. It's just like, he stays two more days. So Lazarus, the one he loves, is sick. Some of, us, some of you may actually feel a little like that today. You've got something going on. You've got a crisis. You've got something happening inside of you and your marriage and your family with your kids or grandkids, roommates, work. And you're in this crisis and you feel like Jesus is just, you know, 20 miles away sitting. Okay. And then he said to his disciples after he waited how long? Two more days. Let us go back to Judea. Now, verse 8. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews were trying, uh, tried to stone you, and yet you're going to go back? Now, this is really important to understand this whole story. It is quite likely that this is the culminating. This is the seventh of the signs that John talks about. But it's probably the culminating event that actually leads way right into the crucifixion of Jesus. So Jesus' choice to go back um, is much more than just, I'm going to go love on Lazarus or Martha or Mary. His choice to go back is actually with the full recognition that as he goes back, he is going to um, face death and the cross. All right? <clears throat> Jesus answered. So now he's talking to his disciples. They're having like a little intimate, you know, meeting. 
Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Those who walk in the daytime will not stumble for they see by the world's light. It is people, uh, it is when people walk at night that they stumble for they have no light. I, I think his disciples at this point are scratching their head going, the guy's sick, you love him. Why are we sitting here doing nothing? The misunderstanding that most of us as humans have of who God is as this good, gracious, beautiful, loving father, and even the misunderstanding that Mary and Martha have or that disciples have of who Jesus is, even when he's on planet Earth, is, uh, it's a little bit mind-boggling. It's like they can't even understand what he's doing. <clears throat> Verse 11, after he had said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep but I'm going there to wake him up. And Jesus is often speaking of the unseen kingdom of God. And then you get these disciples or people around who interpret it very literally. Literally, So here's what the disciples say. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So I love Jesus here too. He just belts it out. He told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. For your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may, what? Believe. But let us go to him. So immediately you begin to get this idea that King Jesus is contending for what? All right, let's go back, let's go back to our verse. I'm, I must not be preaching well enough. We'll go back. All right, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake, I'm glad I was not there, so that you may believe. Okay, so Jesus is sitting down and waiting until Lazarus dies, so that they may I mean, it's, it's, it's really like, uh, what is he doing? And do we actually trust that this Jesus, that this good, gracious, and beautiful God is good and has good intentions uh, for us in his heart? That's what's happening inside their hearts and minds right now. But, end of verse 15, let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us go that we may die with him. Now, what's, what's that thrown in there for? Remember, go back up a few verses. They're afraid that if they go back, what's going to happen? He's going to get stoned. He's going to get killed. They all, like, they smell in the air that Jesus is moving towards death. And Thomas is so, like, Thomas gets a horrible rap. It's a whole other sermon and another thing we had to do at some point. But everybody, you know, doubting Thomas. I think this is courageous Thomas. Thomas is like, okay, I guess we're going. Let's go die with him. I mean, man. We can't even share Jesus with our neighbors. You know what I'm saying? What if they think badly of us? And here you got Thomas. Let's go and to death. Okay, verse 17. It's about a 20-mile journey, by the way. So verse 17 happens after he travels. Um, on his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Any thoughts on why this is important rhetorically? Four days. Why four days? Now, now think, go back to this day and age. There's not like Western medicine as we know it. If somebody's comatose, what could they assume? They might look lifeless. 
You know, there's no heart monitor readings. There's nothing checking like pulse. And uh, so, so there could have been assumptions in this day and age that if someone was um, comatose or quiet or whatever, that they were uh, actually dead when they were alive. And there's even ultra liberal uh, theologians that would say um, he actually was still alive and he was buried alive because that happened in this day and age. Like it, it literally happened. Um, but four days in a sealed tomb behind a rock, what does that tell us? He is good and dead, right? I mean, it's, this is official. And, and I think what I love about the God of the Bible is there's certain times when he intentionally does things to make sure that we have everything we need to fully um, grasp who he is and fully believe. Does that make sense? In other words, I've wrestled at one point with, why did Jesus have to die so publicly? Like, why did it have, he have to hang on a cross? Why did it have to be on a big hill outside of Jerusalem? Why did it have to be so brutal? Like crucifixion in the history of the world is the most brutal way to die ever, period. You die of like drowning in a suffixation in your own lungs. It's horrible. It's a horrible way to die. It lasted three, four, five days sometimes. Why? Because if Jesus had died quietly, there would be no record. And this way, it's this public thing before Pontius Pilate, before the Roman government, before Herod, before the Jewish leaders, before all the people that believed in him. They watched him die. They watched him get buried. So Jesus does things at points that are counterintuitive from our human way of thinking because he's actually introducing us into the larger kingdom of God. Okay, so Jesus hangs out, he sits and waits and probably risks offending everybody. I'm guessing his disciples at this point are offended. Like, what are you doing? You love this guy, you love these sisters and you're just sitting here and we're doing nothing? How many times do we judge Jesus? At least I do. Okay, I'm probably alone, aren't I? Okay, verse 18. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem. And the only reason that's important is Bethany's right outside of Jerusalem. So all these Jews had come from Jerusalem to come comfort and mourn with Mary and Martha. And we don't need to get deep into this, but in Jewish culture at this point, mourning is like this multi-two-week uh, process. And there's lots of loudness and yelling and wailing and crying. And so all that is sort of underway. The other thing that's beautiful is by Jesus waiting, he He's dead. He's now been dead four days. So the, the mourning is in such big process that when Jesus comes to town, there's people everywhere. Okay? All right. Uh, and many Jews had come to Mary and Martha to comfort them and lost their brother. Verse 20. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed home. Now, the other thing that I love here is Martha always gets a bad rap. Like Martha always gets a bad rap. I mean, people are like, oh, we got to be like Mary because she sits at the feet of Jesus, right? Those of you who have been in church and if you haven't been in church and you don't know about Mary and Martha, sorry. Um, but, but people always like we, we elevate Mary and we kind of downplay Martha. But I love Martha here because she's about to be just like so straightforward honest. And Mary's hanging out, not coming out to meet Jesus. What's she saying? What could she be saying by her refusal to come out and meet Jesus? Ooh, I'm going to be passive aggressive and sit back here. I'm not coming out to talk to you. That's my, my translation. 
Okay, verse 21. Lord, Martha said. So Martha is just always like, man, she knows what she thinks. She's going to go out and tell it like it is. So Martha marches right up to the Lord Jesus, creator of the universe, Lord of heaven and earth. And she says, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And then she kind of softens it here. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. I would propose to you that what Martha is actually doing is she is coming out and in the most uh, respectful way she can possibly muster, she is saying, you have absolutely failed us. You did not show up. I am so hurt and I am disappointed and you've let my brother die and I knew that you loved him and I knew that you could have healed him just like we read in a couple chapters ago. You healed the little servant boy and you healed the man that was blind and I know that you could have prevented this and yet you chose not to come. And so she's levying this sort of accusation at Jesus. And I love Jesus because he's always um, patiently absorbing our negativity. It's amazing. But then she softens it. But I know, even now, God will give you whatever you ask. We're going to come back to this because I want you to to think, and we're going to come back and look at this whole idea of if only. If only. I think it's a mind game. I think it's a trap that many of us Christians get stuck in. Living in the if only, okay? Why weren't you here? I think that's another one. We're going to look at both, okay? Verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Now what Martha's citing here is like the hope of all of Judaism in this day and age was that the Pharisees uh, taught and believed, the Sadducees didn't, we're not going to get into that, but the Pharisees believed that there would be a resurrection um, at the culmination and at the end. So Martha is actually declaring a lot of faith here. I know he's going to rise again at the resurrection in the last day. Now, there's something very important here that we're going to get to at the very end of this message. But Jesus is actually wrangling to bring the resurrection and the life, not just for the end, but for the now. So hang on that one. Watch that one. Okay. Um, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Okay, this is one of Jesus' big I am statements. And in many ways, this statement is the culmination of everything that's happened previously in John. Like this is so bold and audacious. I am the resurrection and the life. He's not only claiming at this point to be Yahweh God, um, it's this full, I turned water to wine. We could go all the way back to John, the beginning, and we could walk through it. And he is actually tying together theologically and otherwise everything that he's done. And he's saying, I am here to bring you resurrection and life. Okay, what in the world does that mean? Anyone who believes in me, there's that word again, will live even though they die. Uh, let me just make a comment on believes here because I think this is a, it's a tricky thing in our culture. Um, I uh, resist at points using the word believe because it's kind of weak in the uh, English language. In other words, um, if, you're, if you've been in church a long time, if you've studied the scriptures, you know that there is um, Satan and, and a demonic horde, right? Do they believe in Jesus? 
So the problem to me in our, um, in our English words is when we say believe, it doesn't, it's just not strong enough. So you hear me use the word surrender your life to Jesus a lot. And what believe um, in Greek sort of denotes and, and implies is that someone believes it so fully and strongly that they vested and put everything into believing in it. Does that make sense? So it's not just a, um, I believe, you know, um, I, I believe, it's, it's, a, it's a full, like, I am vested and I know that this is true. I've surrendered everything I have into this awareness and knowledge. Does that make sense? Okay, so let's keep going. Anyone who believes in me will live even though they die. Okay, now remember, Martha is in the middle of what? Like total grief. Some of you in here have lost a brother or a sister, or a mother, or a father, or a son, or a daughter, or maybe even going through something right this minute, today, where someone is moving towards the end of their earthly journey to transition into eternity. So Martha is in pain, she is, in, um, she is hurting, and, and this is what Jesus is saying back to her. Anyone who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. And then he throws it in her face. Do you believe this? Where's her brother? I mean, buried. Like, not only does Jesus, like, I don't think he's being offensive or unkind, but he is, um, there is the idea that Mary and Martha and even the disciples should know him by now enough and trust his goodness, trust his character, that even if they don't get it, even if they don't like it, even if they don't understand it, even if they disagree with it, that if they'll hang on long enough, he will demonstrate his goodness both for their good and his ultimate glory. Does that make sense? But she doesn't. So he confronts her. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him, I believe that you are the Messiah. This is amazing. How is it that this woman has revelation that Jesus is the Messiah when most of the rest of the country is missing it? Like profound. The son of God who was to come into the world. After she said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but he was still at the place where Martha had met him. I think in his great kindness, he is letting these two women come out and vent their frustration in a less public way. Make sense? Verse 31, when the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. Okay. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet I don't know if she's falling at his feet to worship, if she's falling at his feet out of pain and frustration and disappointment, but she falls at his feet and said the very same thing Martha said, which says to me the two of them have been talking. Absolutely. Lord, if you had only been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Um, troubled, deeply moved in spirit, troubled. This is usually, um, in, in the Greek, this would be reserved for like um, visibly and almost violently angry, like a horse snorts and paws the ground. I mean, that's kind of the connotation here. So 
I think what's happening here in this moment is there's probably a double dichotomy. This is, this is Michael um, interpreting in the best way I can um, my Lord Jesus here. But I think there's a double sort of thing happening inside of Jesus. And I would say thing number one is he is frustrated, um, even righteously angry, that uh, this world that he created has been taken, um, that people have fallen prey to the world, the flesh, the devil. They've fallen prey to sin, that sickness and death is ruling in his beloved world, that people that he loves are suffering. Like there's this anger that comes up inside of Jesus where he is troubled and frustrated and he longs actually even probably to go to Calvary so that he can die and ultimately break the back of Satan. He is already looking forward to the day, even when he'll return at the end of the Bible in Revelation and overthrow Satan and take back what rightfully is rightfully his. Okay, so there's this like powerful, like it's like a like a horse snorting and stamping his foot. Okay, and then I think thing number two, and this is probably a little um, trickier for us to wrestle through, but I think thing number two has to be said when he's demonstrated his character and his goodness and his kindness and his graciousness and his long-suffering, and he has demonstrated it to us again and again and again, and we get into a trial and we don't like what's happening or the way it's happened and all of our belief drains out from our little you know hands because we can't hold it and all of a sudden we're grumbling at him and asking these why has this happened if only you had been here sooner what if you had done something different and he there is a frustration that his people do not believe more fully in his goodness and in his character so there is a second part of this that I think it is almost a, um, it's a deeply troubled in spirit, uh, a deeply frustrated and hurt that his people, I mean, these are the super saints. I mean, these are his disciples. These are the people closest to him. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, that he went to their home again and again to rest. Like they'd broken bread with him. They ate with him. They rolled with him. They drank with him. They hung out with him. I mean, they knew him. And he's going, how after all this time? Can you not believe? Verse 34, where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. I love verse 35. What's it say? Jesus wept. Jesus wept. The kindness of the Lord for the suffering that his kids are currently enduring. I wonder if for a moment we were able to grasp that Jesus could be weeping over what you're currently going through. I wonder how it would change your view. I share from time to time, but um, Abby and I have two daughters that are type one diabetics and it's been probably a year ago now, I'm bad with time, but Amelia was, um, she's now four, but she was probably three and she looked at us at one point and said, um, daddy and mama, is, is Jesus sad that I have diabetes? If we, as people, knew that he grieved over the suffering, the sorrow, the pain, the difficulty, I think it would change. Not only the way we see him, but the way we see ourselves and the way we see our circumstances. And it would probably give us deep courage, um, in courage. It would raise courage up within us so that we can hang on and wait for his goodness to be manifest in our lives. Yeah? Okay. Verse 36, the Jews said, see how he loved him. So they are taking Jesus' weeping as proof positive that he what? Loves Lazarus. 
But some of them said, here it is, what if he opened the eyes of the blind man? Couldn't he have kept this man from dying? What if he came sooner? If only he'd showed up for the guy he loved, but nope, he abandoned him. Let him die. Verse 38, Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. Notice here, no one expects a miracle, not even his own, not even his super saints here in this moment. But Lord, said Martha, again, I love Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been in there four days. The NI, or the King James says, he stinketh. <laughs> Anybody reading King James? It does. Verse 40, then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, again, he's contending, stop asking why, stop asking what if, stop if onlying, and begin to believe. Okay, so if you believe, you will see the glory of God. So they took away the stone. I can't imagine the fusses and the fights that are going on behind the scenes, like stepping on each other's toes, fussing at each other. We're going to move this and some dead guy, like, what is he doing? No one believes. And then Jesus, beautiful, kind, gracious, and audacious, looks up at heaven and he says, Father, thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they might believe that you sent me. Oh, that we would believe that every time we open our mouth to pray, whether over something big or small, that the Father always hears us. Verse 43, when he had done this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. I read one. I read one commentator, and the whole idea was if he didn't put Lazarus in front of that, the whole graveyard would have busted up out of the ground. And, <laughs> and I was like, yes, what even faith? I mean, Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. And the dead man rises up, and he walks out. Can you imagine how terrified you would be? The dead guy wrapped up. But Lord, said Martha, oh, sorry, verse 41, nope, 44, the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen. At this moment, Lazarus becomes a picture of all of us, by the way. Um, if I told you my whole testimony, I identified deeply with Lazarus, um, dead, gone, beyond all hope. The Lord reached in and rescued me from the grip of death and hopelessness and despair and drug me out. Some of you know my story and you know that is not an exaggeration. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. I can't imagine the fear and the awe that are going on at this moment. Okay, let's, um, Father, would you give us 
wisdom and revelation? Would you sift our hearts, even on this scripture today? Lord, would you let us see you more fully and accurately, your kindness, your graciousness, your goodness? And Father, would you let us even apply the questions and the wrestling that these two sisters are doing into our own lives? Lord, change us and form us and shape us and fill us with your spirit. Amen. Okay, so two themes to me immediately begin to emerge from this whole chapter. You've got theme number one, this idea of our personal belief. And Jesus is contending for your faith and mine. He's contending for Martha's faith and Mary's faith. He's contending for the disciples' faith. And he's contending for the faith of all the Jews. But in that contention, in that uh, sort of wrestling for faith, it becomes apparent that they have none. Okay, it's like they, they don't have faith right now. And then the second thing that becomes clear is what he is attempting to do is bring glory to who? God. Now what is amazing is anytime he is going to bring glory to God, what comes with it is our blessing. Okay? So you can't separate out. A lot of times I'll say, hang in until you see because God's intention is for your good and his glory. Now, biblically, it really should be his intention is for his glory and your good. But we as humans are self-centered. We see the world from our viewpoint. So sometimes I flip that because I'm going, listen, he is going to work it out for his glory and it will ultimately bless you if you hang in with him and go the distance. The question is, will you go the distance? Okay, so those are the two themes that emerge. So there's this um, why question. Mary asks it, Martha asks it, and it's, it's, I, I wanna um, propose something to you here as we pivot into some practical application. Um, a why question um, is an argumentative, self-seeking, uh, almost like staunch, um, rather than uh, becoming a companion and participant with the Lord Jesus and what he's doing. Okay, keep going with me there. So let's just go down this road. If Jesus loved Lazarus, why did he let him get sick? If Jesus loved Lazarus, why not go to him immediately? Why camp out and do nothing? If Jesus loved Lazarus, why allow him to die? If Jesus loved Lazarus, why not heal him at a distance like he did a few chapters earlier in John? If Jesus loved Lazarus, why wait four days? If Jesus loved Martha and Mary, why not go and comfort them? Why does the behavior of this Jesus seem to contradict his love for Lazarus, for Mary, and for Martha? And I want to, I want to dig you a little bit deeper into this. And I want to suggest that why questions. We could all sit around and we could probably go around the room and every one of us could stand up and we could ask one, two, or three why questions about current circumstances in our lives, couldn't we? If you say no, you're probably not being honest. It's part of life. Why? But I want to propose to you this morning that why questions lead you to a victim type of thinking. Okay? I want to also propose to you that uh, I mentioned Joyce Meyer earlier in this, but she would actually call it stinking thinking. All right? So why questions are going to drive you into a self-centered worldview. Why questions lead us as humans to distrust the heart of God? Why questions lead us out of companionship and participation in this deep and abiding relationship with King Jesus? So let's wrestle this thing down just a little bit deeper. There's this um, idea of remaining sin that is in each of our hearts. Okay, so we come to Jesus, you surrender your life, you confess with your mouth, you believe in your heart, you've given your life to King Jesus. 
and I'm made new, and therefore I'm a saint, right? In God's economy, who God sees Michael to be, and yet Michael still has some remaining sin, okay? So, and and a lot of Christians are funny about this because they want to go, no, 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 I'm a sinner who's saved by grace. Well, I would prefer to be a saint who still has some remaining sin. You hear what I'm saying? And you go, oh, Michael, that's semantics. No, 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 it's not. No, 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 it's not. Because the essence of who the new me is, is a saint with some remaining sin, not a sinner with the capacity to be a saint. You hear what I'm saying? Like that's a little thing, but if you get this deep into you, if you can like eat it, appropriate it, make it yours, it'll change the way you begin to look and think about who? You, and then who? Your, Jesus, that's good. And then your spouse or your roommate or your friends, and you begin to look at people differently. Okay, so let's keep going. So uh, fundamentally, um, most sin, I would say to you, comes from our belief that we could control our life better than Jesus does. So when Mary rolls out there and says, if only, what's she saying? I know better than you, Jesus. You are wrong. You should have been here. My way is better. Come on. Now, we don't go here a lot, but there is this essence deep inside who we are as people. Uh, it, it, is, it is the sin principle, Pauline, Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8, if you want to read it. But it's this thing that lives inside of us that we think we know better. And there's this fundamental war inside of us that says we should be in control of our lives, not him. Okay, let's keep going. Why questions driving us there? We're, we're really saying, I would rather be my own Lord, um, and I would propose to you that in this moment, Mary's problem, Martha's problem, my problem, your problem, is this vertical love relationship between us and the Lord Jesus. Okay. Um, if I like open my heart up to you a minute, I would say I see consistently inside of me the tendency to go to war with God, to have my own will and my own way. A jealous moment, an angry moment, an impatient moment, an unkind moment. Like I am in all of those things, I am frustrated with what he has allowed. And I'm saying, I can do it better than you. I know better than you. Michael's way is better. Okay. (laughs) Paul says he has a place for that. CR. We also have a place for that. Church. Praise Jesus. All of us need that. Okay. So I'm, I'm proposing to you that these why questions actually reveal that we're all slanted towards self-sovereignty. Okay. I'm proposing to you, um, that, that, um, Jesus died to dethrone you and enthrone him in your heart. That's the journey we're all in. That's the Jesus journey. Let me say it like this. Why questions um, reveal that you're either surrendering it all to King Jesus or you're setting yourself up as a king. If you surrender it all to King Jesus, then you're saying, Lord, use all of me for your glory. If you're setting yourself up as a king, you're looking at everyone else saying, I'm going to use you for my glory. We could spend like a week on that. Write it down, make a note, let him sift your heart on it. 
Okay, so here's what I want to actually um, propose or, or get you thinking about. And this is like something that you could probably sit on and let the Lord sift your heart on it for, for a period of time. But I think you can upgrade this why question, which reveals a fundamental argument with God for who's in control, to, Father, for what purpose have you allowed this? And I know that's so simple, but what if Mary and Martha had come out and actually said, Lord Jesus, we're frustrated and we're hurt, but would you help us understand what purpose you've done this? We don't understand. Would you help us understand? I don't think that you would have gotten that, that angry, troubled thing about Jesus towards them. It would have been merely towards the world, the flesh, and the devil. Does that make sense? So uh, there is this, um, there's this fundamental shift um, I told you, we had two girls with type 1 diabetes. That's just our situation. Every one of you has a situation. Don't get stuck on mine. Get this into your life. But when a situation like that comes up, where I have wanted to park is, why would you do this to me? You hear me? Instead of, Father, for what purpose have you allowed this? Like it's a total game changer because then all of a sudden I am engaging in this son relationship I have with the king, with this gracious, kind, and loving father God, and I'm allowing him to begin to speak to me and lead me about how I navigate and who I am as a companion and participant with him. Does that make sense? It's a totally different mindset. Father, for what purpose have you allowed this? You go from a frustrated, disappointed person who you know, maybe even as pitching a fit to a son or daughter seeking to participate with a good God and his good purposes and his glory be established, being established on the earth. I think that question, for what purpose, indicates that you trust his heart and his goodness, you just don't understand. Okay. Upgrading our why questions to Father for what purpose? It makes us companions with him in establishing his kingdom. Powerful. Okay, verse 11, 21, it's where Martha comes to Jesus, if only you'd been here. And then 28, Mary comes and says, if only you'd been here. Oh, no, 32, excuse me. Uh, Mary comes and says, Lord, if only you'd been here. So let's talk about this for a second. If only. If only scenarios are sort of like a wish list to change past circumstances and to shift the way you wish things were in the present. Does that make sense? So I think Christians actually get stuck in this like if only idea. If only my father hadn't abandoned me as a child, then I wouldn't be. You, you hear me? Uh, if only my mother had loved me more, then I wouldn't. Fill in the blank. Um, if only my uncle didn't abuse me, I would be healthier today. You, you hear me? Like, like fill this in in your own vernacular and, and deal with it even in your own life. Um, if only I didn't marry, everything would be fine. You hear me? Like we get stuck in this where instead of engaging in a deep abiding relationship with this loving, gracious father, we're actually pitching a fit and we live in this like this, this wish list world of if only, and we can also do this with our past sin. If only I didn't have that abortion. If only I wasn't unfaithful. Like, you hear me? Like we can live under the weight of the past instead of embracing the resurrection power of Jesus in the present. Okay, that's where we're going, so keep going. So the, the crux, I think, of this is um, living in the if, if only reveals a deep disappointment and disagreement with God, okay? 
So for me, um, I won't go here long, but um, when I was 19, I was over at UNCW, and you've heard me talk about it if you've been here for any length of time, but I've got a seven-year like hole in my life. It's deeply painful, and I got into some a really terrible situation. And I have struggled and struggled and struggled again, not only to forgive uh, what happened to me, forgive some people that did some things, but then I've also just gone, Father, if only I had never gotten involved in that Christian group. If only I'd left when I knew I was supposed to. If only, do you hear me? And so what it does is it engages this wish list thinking in which you're unable to actually engage in the resurrection power of what Jesus wants to do in the present. You hear me? So you render the resurrection power of Jesus useless because you're sitting around going, well, if only this didn't happen. Guess what? It did. The question now becomes, are you at a point where you can invite the resurrection power of Jesus into that situation to help you forgive the uncle who abused you, to help you forgive the dad who abandoned you, to help you deal with your own sin because you got into something weird like I did? It, 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 it is like this, um, it's this crossroads moment where can you engage the resurrection power of Jesus into your life now? Okay, let's pivot again. What if, what if you'd been here? The whole people said, could not he have opened the eyes of the blind man? He could have kept this man from dying. What if? All right, what if questions are suppositional questions that lead us into a fantasy reality? Okay, go here with me. Um, what if questions would change the course of circumstances and relationships to suit our desires? So if I'm changing the course of circumstances and relationship to suit my desires, I'm living in my head, I become the creator of my world. I'm sovereign over my little fantasy world. I'm the maker, I'm the creator. Okay, let's go down this road, just some possibilities. What if I had different parents? What if I was born with a different ethnicity? What if I was prettier? What if I was a different gender? What if I had a college education? Go simpler. What if I didn't have cancer? For me, I've wrestled with, back to my little story I shared with you, if I'd only gone to a different college, what if? The problem that all this reveals is it's not usually what's out there that's the problem. Have we been hurt? Possibly. Have we been abused? Maybe. Do we need to forgive and work through that? Absolutely. I'm not, I'm not saying any of that's not true. But situations in our life always reveal what's in us. And the grand problem with life is everywhere you go, you're still there. I have run from things and run from things and run from things and finally I stand up and go, this problem is everywhere with me. It's no longer their problem, it's oh, Jesus. It's me, it's me, it's me, oh Lord. Remember that one? Standing in the need of prayer. Okay. <clears throat> I think what if and if only, let me try to 
connect this, is an imaginary choose-your-own-ending fantasy. It's an argument with God over what he's caused or what he's allowed. It could be shame and guilt over your past choices. What if I didn't? Um, And it could also be hurt and anger, unforgiveness at choices of those around you. If only my spouse hadn't. Let me say just so clearly, to the degree you're living in the past, or even in some choose-your-own-adventure version of reality, what if and if only, you are rendered unable to access the resurrection power of the Lord Jesus in the here and now. And that's what he's confronting Mary and Martha with. You guys are so stuck regretting what has already happened that I'm showing up to bring you the resurrection and the life. I'm inviting you into it. Yes, Martha, you're right. I'm going to raise them up at the end. But more than just raise them up at the end... I want to bring my resurrection power into the now. And because you're so stuck living in the why and the what if and the if only, you are rendering the power, the resurrection power of Jesus that I'm making available to you now useless. Get out of my way. That's what he's saying. It's like, oh my goodness. So Jesus uh, brilliantly shifts all of this, and he successfully moves in this one chapter the doctrine of resurrection out of the end, and he brings it into the now. It's both. Don't, don't get me wrong. Is he still going to resurrect us at the end? Yes, but he also wants to bring the resurrection power into the now, into this moment, into this day, into the present. Okay. So he shifts... Um, this idea, okay, let me, let, me, let me just go here another minute. Um, you can live in your what-ifs, you can live in your if-onlys, you can live in your why, or you can live in the resurrection power of Jesus, but you can't live in both places simultaneously. Like you can take that one to the bank every single time. If we live in our what-ifs and if-onlys, we are actually appropriating the what-ifs and if-onlys instead of the cross of Christ Jesus, I don't know, I know appropriation's a weird word and I can't find another word in the English language because it's like, how do you um, appropriate the resurrection power of Jesus? You gotta like make it your own. You gotta assimilate it into yourself. You gotta take it into you. You gotta let Jesus be formed inside of you. And I could, let me, let me pause here and, and just be silly as, we, as, as I try to bring all this together for us. Abby, uh, my Abby, I love Abby. She's so good for me. You remember that old, um, some of you children of the 90s might remember this. You remember Shania Twain? <laughs> she, she had this song, um, You Don't Impress Me Much. You remember that? And she, there's a line in it that goes, so you think you're Brad Pitt. You, some of you don't even know who Brad Pitt is. You're like, who's Brad Pitt? He's some washed up husband now. I get it. Okay, whatever. So she think you're Brad Pitt. And then she goes, you don't impress me much. That's Abby with me. It's so good. It's so good. So I, I walk in last week, and she, Abby says, like, will you just be more practical on, like, what does it mean to appropriate the life of Jesus? Like, what do you, how do you do that? And I'm like, babe, this is so hard to explain. I'm like, it's the mystery of God. It's the kingdom of God. I, have, I mean, how do you do oh. She's like, you don't impress me much. <laughs> okay, so here it is. Here it is in the simplest form I can even make it. How do you move past your why? 
How do you move past your if only? How do you move past your what if? How do you upgrade those questions into Father for what's your purpose? How do you appropriate this life, death, and resurrection power of Jesus into your life? This is the simplest way I know how to put it, and it's still a mystery. I can't make it like unmysterious. Number one, you surrender it all to the best of your ability. Just go, Lord Jesus, I, I don't have it, and I need you. Would you forgive me? And you confess again. You'll hear me say, Michael was saved. Michael's being saved, and Michael will be saved. It's the Jesus journey. You surrender it all. And then you actually appropriate, and I, I, I'm sorry for that word. I can't find another word. But you, you make your own this Jesus, and you ask him to come and change your heart, to form Christ Jesus in you. And then you get up and you live by faith. And are you going to mess up? Yes. Are you going to get back in his face again like Mary and Martha and go, why? If only. What if? Yes. And what do you do again? You surrender it all. Appropriate that resurrection faith. Lord, I can't change the way I feel. I can't change the way I'm looking at life, but I know that you can. Would you plant that resurrection power of Jesus inside of me? And then you get up like the blind man a couple weeks ago and you journey it out by faith. And you do it again. And you do it again. And you do it again. And so as we end today, in fact, worship team, y'all are standing right there. Come on back out here. At this point in the Gospel of John, what has happened is the stage has been set for the greatest drama in history. Satan and all of his hordes, as we move into chapter 12 and beyond, are going to feed Herod and Pontius Pilate and all the Pharisees, and they're going to give their absolute worst. And then you've got King Jesus who's going to show up and he's going to give his best. And he's called us not to get it right or to do it right, but to come and exchange our broken life for the resurrection power of Jesus. To come to the place where you go, I'm going to stop living in my what ifs. I'm going to stop living in my if onlys. I'm going to stop living in the why questions. And I'm going to begin to say, Lord Jesus, I can't change what was or what has happened but I can begin to appropriate the resurrection power of the cross of Christ now. Might he heal you? Yes. Might he raise somebody from the dead? Yes. Might he begin to heal your heart? Yes. Might he begin to change who you are on the inside? That's a miracle. Let's stand to our feet. I'm going to ask them to lead us in a closing song. Our prayer team, if you guys would come up and be available up front. I've been silly using the word super saints today, but these prayer teams aren't super saints. They're just normal people. So if you need special prayer, come on up and ask for it. Let's worship the Lord, and uh, I'll close us in just a minute. Tender whisper of 
this place today, I pray that you would let us be a people who is able to let go of our what ifs, let go of our it onlys, let go of our why gods, and embrace the resurrection power of you, Lord Jesus, not just at the other end of time and eternity, but right now. Father, I pray that this would be a group of people who begin to grasp and abide in the resurrection power of Jesus that you'd flood into marriages, that you flood into relationships between mothers and kids and fathers and kids and roommates and siblings. Father, I pray that we would see the transformative power of the gospel of Christ Jesus at work in and through our lives. Father, we love you. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.
If you're here and you've never given your life to Jesus, if you're viewing online and you've never given your life to Jesus, put it in the chat. I'd love to talk to you or pray with you. It's very simple. It's just a supernatural transaction where you surrender it all. If you're here, don't forget, we've got a picnic. That's exactly right. Come, you got to eat lunch. So come by and hang out, eat some lunch with us. Go knowing that this is the Jesus that wants to instill the resurrection power into your situation today. Amen.